Welcome to Huddle Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Inda NTR. Hi, Inda. How are you doing? Hey, Mark. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm actually doing better right now. I've had a, a really busy morning here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had that, I get this feeling, Inda, you know, whether I'm at work or at home, where I need good comfort food. Mm. And uh, the comfort food that I have sitting in front of me right now is uh, it's called tofu teriyaki. Yeah. And it's. It's very yummy, and it's from um, a, uh, a local restaurant called Take Sushi in Uptown St. John here. Okay. And I, I have to tell you, and uh, like over the years, um, comfort food has come to mean different things to me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm 51 years old now, now, and you know, 20 or 30 years ago, comfort food wouldn't have been tofu teriyaki. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would have been a slice of pizza, mm. or <laughs> it could have been a donut. Yep. And uh, I want to know what, tell me what comfort food is for you, because I know you've kind of grown up a- around the world and are settled down there here in New Brunswick. Um, but I'm guessing comfort food isn't a donut or a piece of pizza to you. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends, but there are some things that are still so fresh in my mind. Um, the 6 or 7 a.m. in the morning in Tehran, where people line up. Uh, in front of a very small bakery and for this thing called non barbari which is a big like flat bread it looks like a skateboard <laughs> i used to think it looked like a skateboard when i was little and just the smell mark like you can just imagine like the smell of fresh bread at 6 or 7 a.m and like you're walking your sister to school and it's just the best thing ever and where do you get that can you get that anywhere in moncton now or something like it uh, I got something close to it once in Fredericton. Um, actually, there was a little, a small vendor at the Fredericton Market once that used to sell uh, that naan. But unfortunately, it's quite hard to find around here. Well, it's funny you should mention that it's a bakery that that jumped to mind for you, um, although in a very different cultural context than, yeah. the, than New Brunswick. But uh, the reason why I bring this up is. Um, on the show today, we are talking to uh, Blair and Rosalind Hislop, and they are the owners of Mrs. Dunster's, um, mm-hmm. which also has, uh, you know, operations in Moncton and owns uh, McBuns, which is a, a long, long time institution in Moncton. Mm, bakeries. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think after we, we do this chat, I, I got a feeling you're heading out somewhere for something to eat. Probably going to go find a donut. <laughs> <laughs> One and, and and in a conversation with uh, Rosalind and, and and Blair, um, who you know have, uh, owns uh, Mrs. Dunster's since 2014, and and it's grown uh, in leaps and bounds over the years. And mm-hmm. um, to the point where they you know they you know moved into to Moncton mm-hmm. and, and into the rest of the Maritimes, and uh, they were actually I was just remembering this morning in the conversation I had with them, they were our 2017 uh, Business People of the Year for the way in which they grew in particular in 2017. Right. Uh, growing Mrs. Dunster's, also acquiring McBuns in, in Moncton. Um, they now own Credles, which is a, a, a small store in, in Hampton that does grocery and it has like a, a garden center business um, mm-hmm. and, and a bakery as well. And, and they're one of these, these entrepreneurial couples that I've been kind of long fascinated with. And so I've been waiting for the chance to have a good chat with them. And, and of course, in, in a conversation with Blair and, and Rosalind, comfort food comes up uh, because Mrs. Dunster's is, is one of these really old 
brands in this region. And right. everybody that they bump into has a Mrs. Dunster story of some kind. Right. Uh, and so I know that's probably not in your own in your own background, but maybe Mrs. Dunster's is going to make a fan of you, Inda. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll have to go over there and like maybe find a donut or some sweets. And we have some a little bit of news, you know, and that's a good Moncton story, Inda, that that you'll uh, hear about in the interview I'm about to do with them, uh, because they are uh, opening uh, a new facility, a new production facility, and and bakery in Moncton sometime in the next uh, month or two. So there's some good Moncton news in there for everyone, especially in in the midst of of COVID and and you know talking about how our businesses are are. It's struggling, of course, because it's a tough time. Uh, but there are companies that are also making a pivot, and and others that are that are growing in this time, which is really encouraging. And Mrs. Dunster's is one of those uh, companies that you're going to see grow in Moncton sometime very soon. Right. That's that's going to be such a interesting conversation to listen to. Yeah. Well, let's go to that conversation, Enda. All right. Hi, Blair. Hi, Rosalind. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Great. Yeah. And where do I find you two this morning? We are in our home office in uh, Quispamsis this morning. One of the many, many, many locations we seem to work from. Right. And now I know I, I sat down with you both a, a couple of years ago. Are, are you in your, is it like a, a kitchen office or is it an office office? No, it's an office office. <laughs> yeah. With COVID, all of our uh, adult children have, have come home. So we, we needed a more private space. You needed to carve off your own space. Yeah. yeah. No, we, we, um, had the same thing with our, our home office with, uh, with Janet and I, she, uh, she, uh, took over a room in the front of the house and I took over our living room and they both, the, we could close both doors, <laughs> which really helped. It yeah. does help for sure. It, but we didn't have locks on them. So I, I think, you know, we probably would have wanted to install those because we, our kids are a bit younger. They're nine and, and 11. So, you know, they, they would think nothing of bursting into the room and we were on like a, a Zoom meeting or something like that. Yeah. yeah. That doesn't change when they get older, by the way, Mark. It's just uh, oh, it doesn't. people with younger kids thinks it's different when you have older kids, but it's not. <laughs> so tell me how, uh, how many kids do you have? What are their names or their ages? So we have three kids. Um, Josie is 24 and Emma is 22 and Noah is 17. And are they all home with you right now? So um, Josie's home with us and, uh, and Noah as well. And uh, Emma was, but we've, Emma is working in the business with us. And so she is now back in Moncton um, preparing for the, our new plant opening. So, well, I was um, kind of reviewing cause we, you know, we, you and we have chatted with you guys uh, some in the past, you've done many stories about your businesses. And I was, I was reminded today when I was reviewing some of those stories that you were our original huddles, original business people of the year in 2017. Yes, we were. That was quite a surprise and, um, and, and much appreciated. We've had, you know, we've had a lot of wins uh, over the last six years since, since we got into this business and, uh, and that was definitely one of the highlights. For sure. And one of, one of the things that stands out for me from uh, one of the original long conversations that I had with both of you was hearing, hearing the story of how these two entrepreneurs met 
And Rosalind, can you uh, tell us tell us that story again? Sure. So uh, Blair and I were both involved in junior achievement when we were in high school, um, myself in St. John and, and Blair in Dartmouth. And uh, after I graduated high school, I moved to Halifax and uh, volunteered for um, junior achievement there, recruiting high school students to the program. And uh Blair was also volunteering and we got matched up to go into the schools and uh, that's where we met and uh, just kind of kind of went from there. So we both had a love of business from a, a young age and, uh, you know, talked about owning our, our own businesses someday uh, on our first date. So that's, you know, kind of went from there. So. And did you feel that? How long did it take to de- develop? Did you feel that that spark right away? both the business spark and the spark between the two of you? Yeah, well, you know, like Rosalind said, on our first date, we talked about owning our own business someday and uh, our dreams and aspirations for that. So um, so most definitely, I think we we, uh, we hit the ground running, as it were. And love at first sight. Uh, we, you know, it was, I remember one of the things that uh, was remarkable is I think we were a couple weeks into our relationship and my mother walked into the living room or sitting there watching a show or something and just randomly said, now, when you two get married, blah, 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 blah. We just both kind of looked at each other because we had just started dating, but it seemed, I guess, obvious to even her that that this was our destiny. I I think too, um, a big part of, you know, that connection is um, just having similar backgrounds and um, brought up the same way and, you know, same uh, family uh, values. And, uh, I think that's really important when you're building a, a strong relationship is to have that strong connection as well. So tell me about your, your early, you know, journeys in business and, and what led you, you know, ultimately to, to buying Mrs. Dunster's. Well, that, that's, that could be a very long story. So I guess that <laughs> depends on where we start, but um, you know, the short version of it is that, uh, you know, I started when I, when I met Rosalind, she was, she was from St. John and, and, uh, her family was here and we set out to, I set out to find sort of employment in this area. And I was, I was still in university, uh, going to St. Mary's at the time in, in Halifax. And, and so I applied for a job at a, at a Eastern Bakeries in St. John, which was sort of the head office of a, of, uh, of Eastern Bakers, which was the regional arm of, of a national company, which is now sort of Canada Bread and, and Group Bimbo. So, uh, but the head office at the time was in St. John, and I got hired as a young sort of marketing person in, in that role. And that really started my career in, in the food business. And, you know, I've been in, that was in 1991, I think, and been in the food business uh, ever since. So I spent uh, several decades working for great maritime brands. I worked uh, back then, it would have been butternut bread, Carnes bread, fun buns, and those kind of brands at Canada bread and spent some time with Moosehead breweries and, and uh, with uh, King Cole or barbers out of Sussex, which is King Cole tea and barbers, but spent most of my career with McCain international and on the McCain side of things, when we were up in, in Woodstock, you know, it was, it was my job to, travel around the world uh, for McCain and work with our local teams to develop um, the supply chain for, you know, frozen food in emerging markets around the world. So in the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, uh, 
Russia and, and other places, we were we were trying to develop the food business, um, you know, sort of the business development arm of McCain. And so that was, you know, for a young guy from Atlantic Canada to be traveling the world and doing that kind of work, I just felt like I had the best job in the world, you know, filled five passports in eight years, I think. And Roslyn was, uh, at the time, you know, the decision was made that one of us needed to be home <laughs> yeah. uh, with the kids and Rosin often described herself describes herself at that time anyway as a, a single married mother and and uh, so she was staying home with the kids and looking after that but all the while we were you know how are we going to get our, our own business someday and time was just never right the kids were too young or career was taking off and and these other things so so we always put that off until we could put it off no longer. Opportunities life, life got out. in the way. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 uh, so, what was that you know path, Rosalind, that that led you to realize that the time was right? Was it circumstance? Was it um, your own conscious decision that it was time to to uh, get into a business on your own? Yeah, I think you know we had uh, you know we we moved out to Ontario for a few years uh, to work out there and uh, after McCain and, um, and then we decided that, that we needed to come home. And uh, when we, we got home, we really, I think we just started thinking more about, you know, okay, what, you know, now's the time we need to start thinking about what we're doing and kind of just looking more, but opportunities came up, but they just weren't quite right. And then, um, during that time, Blair was, uh, started working at, uh, Barber's in, uh, in Sussex and, um, um, and then the opportunity for Mrs. Dunster's came up and he came home and he said, uh, I think we have a, I think I found the business that we need to buy. And as soon as he told me about it, I just, uh, I knew that this was the, the right one for us. And, um, you know, it just, uh, we often say that it just felt like everything we had done in our lives has kind of led us to this opportunity and it just seemed to be the right, right fit for us. So, and now both of you are, you know, born with kind of, you know, really business in your blood and, and a passion for it. And, and in the early days of getting to know each other, uh, that was a connection point for you, both passionate about business. And I'm curious, Rosalind, was it, after um, you know spending time focusing on the kids, how did how did you feel? Were you excited that to get back into the game? For sure, and you know, uh, throughout the time when I was home, and you know, Blair would come home from work, and he'd have to fill me in on his day and everything he did, and so that we could hash it out, and I could give him my uh, opinions and thoughts on things. So, um, just really, you know. I, I always loved that, and he was very good at keeping me engaged and and uh, living vicariously through him at that time, I guess. So, um, and then when this opportunity came up, yeah, it was really exciting. And you know, one of the things that we talked about was um, Mrs. Dunster's didn't have a, you know, an HR um, department or a person, and uh, you know, I had spent a lot of time uh, even home with the kids. Um, you know, I was on a lot of uh, you know, parent boards and preschool boards and, you know, community boards. And so I had had a lot of, um, I guess, experience with people and dealing with people and volunteers. So, and organizing those types of things. So kind of just, that seemed like a good fit for me at that time. So that's kind of where, where I started in. 
and was able to kind of, you know, add value, I guess, from, from the start. So. I, I think that, you know, if, if we're honest, that Rosin was a little bit nervous about, you know, her, her lack of experience in, in, in the recent years in the industry. And I remember just saying to her that, and I think this is important because there's other people that might be listening to this that are in similar situation. And, you know, it was a very conscious decision for us to say, look, I've worked with lots of people in my career who had lots of experience, but weren't capable of exercising good judgment on a regular basis. And one of the things I love about Rosalind is she always exercises good judgment in, in whatever she's doing. And, and, you know, I knew that would carry the day and make up for any lack of experience. I'll take somebody who can exercise good judgment over somebody who has experience any day. And, and that's been the experience. So it's, it's, you know, I would say, you know, it didn't take Rosalind long to catch up um, in terms of, of being able to add value um, to the industry and to the business, having having been home for a while. So it was like riding a bike for her. Right. And and so you know, so here you are, and you've you've um, you know worked for you know really quite you know iconic you know New Brunswick you know food companies with Barber and McCain, and 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 here you are now. Uh, about to purchase another iconic uh, brand for this region in, in Mrs. Dunster's. So tell me a little bit about that, the motivation to, you know, buy that company and, and the process of, of growing it and, and putting your own stamp on it. Yeah. So in terms of, of the process of buying it, I guess the thought was, is that, you know, we'd had a lot of success um, working for folks like McCain in emerging markets or, or Moosehead or, or Barbers with companies, I guess the common link in our the successes that, that I had experienced in those organizations was that we were working often in markets and, and with products that everybody thought had more potential than was being realized, you know? And, and so when we, we looked at Mrs. Dunster's, it very much felt like that. Everybody we talked to thought that this was an amazing brand um, that, that people loved, but it, it had more potential um, than was being realized. And when we, as we got into due diligence and started talking more and more to the management and the people that were involved, it became clear that, that our assumptions on that were correct. And so, you know, it, it was in the practical terms, it was the bakery business, it was direct to store delivery uh, model on the distribution side. And those were things I was familiar with from the early, early days of, of Eastern bakeries back in the day. So, um, so it felt comfortable. We understood the industry. Rosalind uh, felt like she understood the industry, as she said, because she was sort of living vicariously through me in those early days. And uh, um, and it was a great brand that had lots of potential. And it was it was really that simple. It, it's funny how how really you know truly strong that that brand was. Like it, it is, I should say. Um, I was just thinking, you know, as we're chatting. I spent uh, the summer. This summer, I spend the I spend the winters in in hockey rinks and and, and basketball auditoriums. And in the summer, I spend uh, the summers at baseball fields. <laughs> this is my through my, living through my son and his sports interests. And this summer, uh, on many occasions, we needed to go travel to Sussex uh, to play baseball. Uh, and the field, and you know it well. It's one of the fields right behind Mrs. Dunster's in Sussex. And I can't tell you, like, we would arrive at the ball field 
and the parents, the kids would go on the field and the parents would set up their lawn chairs behind the, uh, behind the fence, uh, behind home plate. And it didn't take any more than a minute uh, before the chatter started about where we were <laughs> and what time of day it was and was the bakery open. <laughs> <laughs> and you had, you know, dozens of parents, uh, you know, all of a sudden getting up from their chairs and, and walking towards your bakery uh, to, you know, to buy, uh, to buy donuts, to buy whatever they could find in that bakery. And you, you, you must've known when you, when you took on the companies, the company that you were buying that kind of brand, eh? Well, the, you know, I, if you come into the bakery, um, on the wall, there's, there's a framed, uh, montage of, of newspaper, uh, clippings that the day after we bought the business, it was the front page of every newspaper in the province and we were on every morning show in the province and and so we saved those clippings and, and put them up on the wall but i always tell people when they're looking at that that you know if 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 we'd have bought the car dealership next door which was probably a larger business at that point um no, nobody would have cared you know um but here we were because it was mrs dunster's and the strength of the brand and and the love for that brand um, that uh, that we were sort of on the front page of all the newspapers. So it's a remarkable brand, and you know, a testament to to Ingrid Dunster and her, her husband Harold, who started that brand some fifty years ago uh, in Fredericton, and and uh, and developed that over the years. And, and Dairytown, of course, who owned it after that. Um, you know, they they did some wonderful work building that brand. But going back to that field, Mark, I think, well, I'll tell you a, a funny story in, uh, about that field as it relates to us is, uh, I think we 30 years ago last month, is that true? 30 years ago last month, we were engaged in in uh, in a hot air balloon that took off from that field right next to the bakery. And uh, so when I asked Rosalind to marry me, it was during the balloon fiesta in Sussex, and we went up in a hot air balloon, probably 50 yards from the front door of the bakery we now own. And... Uh, so we've we've come full circle as it relates to that. Wow. So like now you're you're fully immersed in that business. When when you look out on that backfield, do you still have that that does it still carry that special association of of you, you know, getting engaged and, you know, eventually uh building a life together, but also one day we would take over this business. Yeah, for sure. And I think I can't, was it our 25th? Yeah. yeah our 25th anniversary, we went back up in the balloon just to, just to celebrate during the, the festival. And, uh, you know, and, and that festival is a reminder every year that, you know, just of that, that of our anniversary and, and how far we've come and, you know, that now we're kind of, uh, part of Sussex a little bit more, which is kind of a, a really, uh, Important thing to us as well. So, but your 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 point about sort of the, the 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 parents sitting on the chairs behind the baseball field and that field, you know, is really sort of part of the community and as is the bakery. But to put that into context for you, you know, that store that those parents would have gone in at the bakery is uh, no more than eight hundred square feet. It's pretty small, and uh, we get. Uh, in a town, Sussex has what forty eight hundred people, I think, and we get four hundred thousand visitors a year in that little store. Sorry, I'd just like to add about you know just the fact that um, you know you told us that story. Um, one of the things that we love, and we always say this is what we love most about owning Mrs. Dunster's, that um, when you tell them where you work, um, 
they tell you a story. So, you know, their grandmother, you know, used to have those donuts around or, you know, the, our garlic cheese buns, somebody, you know, stopping on the way from Halifax because they heard from so-and-so that, you know, they had to try them. And every, every single time we tell somebody where we work, that's, we, we get a story of something. I even have my own when I was a kid, that was our Sunday treat. We had Mrs. Dunster's donuts. So, um, yeah, so it's just really cool. So, and, and when we first bought Mrs. Dunster's, we were talking to all the employees and when we asked the driver, um, what he liked most, that was one of the things he said was that when he tells people where he works, they, people smile and then they tell a story. So, it was just funny that you told us a story. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's just absolutely commonplace for you to hear those. And and for me, it was kind of it was kind of special because I obviously did uh, also grew up uh, eating Mrs. Dunster's donuts, uh, but I'd actually never. I'd never been to the site before. So I, I, it was actually, I just happened to be sitting down at, at the game and, uh, and had been late and was trying to get there uh, quickly to make sure Jack could get there to play in time. So I wasn't even paying attention to my surroundings. So when I sit down in that chair for the first time, if people tell me where I am, I was right back up out of my chair. <laughs> if people forget, and, we remind them with the smell of donuts and ginger snaps, and that brings them in. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes me think, uh, Blair, sort of talking more about how you bought this business and then grew it. I, you know, I was thinking about you talking about, you know, buying this highly, highly visible business in that town. And then you have the, you know, the nearby car dealership and, and that one probably being a, a bigger business at the time. Um, but because of the focus on Mrs. Dunster's, obviously that's very much captures the public imagination. So how did you go about, you know, buying that business? Uh, and, but then building on its strength and, and starting to, to grow it in your own way and according to your own sort of ambitions for the company? Well, if, if I look at how we went about buying the business, I, I'm, I was thinking about this uh, this morning that it was really kind of a remarkable idea. Um, you know, we, we, as Rosin said, I came home and said, I think I found the business that, that we've been looking for. And then I made them an offer and they accepted it. And, and, uh, but I didn't have any financing. We didn't have a plan. No. We didn't. Uh, so I quit my job. <laughs> it's okay. Well, now we got to find the money to buy it. And, uh, and at the time, the president of, of Dairytown is, so Dairytown was owned it and they were selling to AgriPure, which was a large dairy cooperative out of, um, out of Quebec. And they, they weren't interested in, uh, owning, owning a bakery. So they were, you know, I'd asked them to find a buyer for the bakery. And, and so the president at the time had told us that, you, you know, if we can get this deal done in eight weeks, then you're, you're dealing with the dairy farmers of New Brunswick. If it's eight weeks in a day, then you're dealing with sort of corporate lawyers out of Quebec. So said, so you decide, you know, so we had eight weeks to, to do the due diligence, raise the financing and, and close the deal. Um, because we knew if it dragged on, um, you know, it would just be more costly and, and, uh, and stressful. And so that's what we did. Eight weeks later, we owned the business and it was, uh, it was a bit crazy, but in terms of growing the business, you know, remember we had a, a business plan that said we would grow at 3% a year. Um, the banks pushed back on that and suggested that that was quite aggressive given the history of the company. Uh, and so we, 
we kind of revised it and and went forth with this conservative plan nonetheless. And what happened was, you know, we realized that this little store that we've been talking about, this 800 square foot store that was getting 400,000 visitors a year, had 175 products in it that were being baked in the bakery. And then we had these trucks that were going to 600 stores, every grocery store in the Maritimes in Maine twice a week. And those trucks had about 14 products on them. So we had less than 10% of the products, closer to 5% of the products that we were making were going to 600 points of distribution. And 160 of the products we were making were going to one point of distribution. And we thought, wow, we have all the market research we need right here in the cash register in terms of what is popular and what's selling and what people love about um, the products. And if we can find the right mix of that sort of consumer interest with the shelf life of the product um, that would withstand sort of the journey of, of going out to market and also allow enough room in the pricing to to give retailers the opportunity to, to market up and make a few dollars. If we can find those items, we could we could grow this business. And that's exactly what we did. So, you know, we English muffins and garlic cheese buns and other products we started to take from from one point of distribution and expand it into uh, you know, a few more stores and a few more stores and so on and so forth. And uh, so that was really sort of the model that, that we followed. But the other thing that happened is the day after we bought the business, within 24 hours of owning it, we got a phone call and we lost 15% of our business. So we had been the distributor for a line of, of snack cakes out of the U.S. and they had used the sale of the business as an opportunity to get to get out of the distribution agreement. So we were immediately on defense as it related to to the business. So we, we sought to go out and to talk to all of the other regional bakeries in the area and see if uh, any of them would be interested in having us do their distribution so that we could you know pick up some product lines and, and keep our trucks going uh, to stores. And through that process, we ended up you know, having conversations with folks that were more interested in having us buy them than were interested in having us distribute their products. So that sort of set us off on this completely unintended path um, towards acquisitions. And so, you know, as of today, I think, you know, within, I don't know, the first four years, let's say, uh, we did four acquisitions. And what were those acquisitions? So our first acquisition was Snares Bakery and um, Borden PEI, and that was a family bakery that really got us into the bread and roll business. And Mrs. Dunster's had been primarily donuts and cookies, right? Yeah. And uh, and that was a great acquisition because it allowed us to um, get uh, they they were a big big still are a big brand in Nova Scotia and PEI, and and that's Mrs. Dunster's was a little. Uh, slower in those two markets in terms of filling trucks anyway. So so that filled our trucks in Nova Scotia and PEI with bread and rolls. And then because we launched Mrs. Dunster's Bread into New Brunswick, um, we were able to um, increase the, the productivity of the, of the bakery over there that was making the bread and rolls um, through our distribution. So that was a great acquisition. Um, got us into the bread and roll business, which got us into kind of the food service business. And restaurants and those kinds of things and then the next acquisition was uh, McBun's bakery in Moncton so that the McBun's had two stores of their own had some has uh, some remarkable 
um, pastries and bread and roll products um, that they were selling primarily through their own stores and pizza and, and, pizza, and pizza shells. And they were doing uh, also a fair amount of business uh, in Moncton in the food service and to restaurants and, and hospitals and uh, hotels and this kind of thing. So that really helped us kind of grow that business and expanded our, our store network a little bit. Um, so we have, uh, we had, in the meantime, it opened a store in Dartmouth. So now we have four stores of our own, um, which is a, a wonderful way to connect directly with, with customers and to give us an opportunity to try new products and, and uh, to be part of, of other communities, which was awesome. And anyway, and then the last one was Credles Corner Market in Hampton, which is, uh, you know, a, a regional sort of market that has a butcher shop and a bakery and a, uh, garden center and homemade ice cream and one of the larger commercial kitchens in southern New Brunswick where we make fantastic yummy food for hospitals and nursing homes and schools and folks like that uh, all with local ingredients I think Credles has probably uh, well I know it has the largest assortment of products uh, that are made or grown in in Atlantic Canada um, anywhere in the region so so those are those are our acquisitions. Yeah. Right. And so a 3% uh, growth rate becomes what? <laughs> In that sense. Uh, the average growth rate since we bought the business uh, for the first five years was between 30 and 40% a year. Um, the last uh, year before COVID hit, we, we grew at uh, 50% that one year. So it's been remarkable, remarkable ride. You know, there's one point in 60 days, we added 100 employees at one point. <laughs> it, yeah. was, it, was, uh, it was crazy. And, and it wasn't just the acquisitions that were driving the growth. It, it was the, um, the core business was growing just as fast. So I'd say half, only half of that growth came from, from the acquisitions themselves. And now in, in the midst of, of the pandemic, you're about to grow again. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that's been our our project here this year. Uh, we we're opening uh, a commercial uh, bakery in Moncton. Uh, it'll be probably the first commercial bakery that's been built in Atlantic Canada, probably since Mrs. Dunsters was built in Sussex twenty years ago. And so we're very excited about about that. It'll be uh, a very modern facility. Um, it will it'll complement um, the existing bakery that we have in in Sussex, um, and uh, Sussex will be um, will still still and always be a core part of our our existence for sure. Um, so this will be our, our second bakery in New Brunswick uh, of that size, and you know it's it's going to we like to say the good news is that bakery equipment lasts for fifty years, and the bad news is you know all of the equipment that we had was 50 years old. So this, this is going to give us an opportunity to, to modernize and, uh, and get some, some new equipment. And, you know, in fact, yesterday we spent the entire day uh, in the boardroom with uh, some of the employees that are going to be employed in that, in that facility. And, you know, we had a remarkable day with the energy level and the enthusiasm of, of folks looking forward to, to working in a new facility with new equipment and, and uh, all of the benefits that 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 brings is it's going to be it's going to be fun yeah the team's really excited about uh, all the new equipment and even some people that we thought might not like the change because uh, some of them are doing you know some of them are doing um you know uh baking stuff beginning to end and this is you know more of a uh 
some of it's more of a line process and they're just so excited about the new plant and new opportunity that they're uh, they're looking forward to uh, working with new equipment and working with the team so very exciting so in terms of the of the number of employees you would have now how 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 much has it has it grown in the years since you've owned it and this i would think both of the you know the core business that you would have bought mrs dunsters but also through the acquisitions uh how many how many employees would you have across your companies so um when we started out we were just you know above 50 and uh when we had mrs dunsters and now we're up over 200 so so we've uh and some of that is you know through acquisition and some of that's just through the growth we've had to hire more people so we're probably short and how many 20 people today yeah right and how much will it grow with um, with with the new the new facility in Moncton? Well, that that remains to be seen. So a lot of that is uh, we're we're putting you know people from different parts of the business together in, into that facility. They're moving over there from other places, um, you know. But that that bakery has significant opportunity uh, within its capabilities to grow. Um, we will eventually have uh, a store there and, a, and the pastry department as well as, as bread and rolls and, and other things. So, um, so initially, I think um, the plan is that we will start with 20 to 25. Within six months, I think we'll be adding 20 people or so. And then when we open the store, we'll probably open another dozen or add another dozen. So it'll be 50 or 60 people there by the time we're done. Yeah. Now it's obviously very, very strong growth, which creates its opportunities, but also its challenges. Do you, do you have, uh, what, what, what are your labor force issues? Like, do you, do you have a, a difficult time uh, recruiting or what, what does that look like? Yeah, it's, you know, it's been a challenge from the beginning, um, to find, uh, the right people to, you know, to do this work. And, um, you know, I think just in general in Atlantic Canada, the, the labor force is shrinking and, um, you know, we're not the only business facing, uh, tr- facing, facing issues of finding people. So, um, you know, that's one of the things that's going to help us with this new bakery is, you know, just having, um, you know, um, more automation and, uh, and, you know, our goal is always to employ people. Um, but, when you have trouble with, you know, finding people, then, you know, you have to look to other ways to um, get the work done. And, um, but I think even with the the new equipment and new automation that, um, you know, we have better opportunities to grow and we'll still be able to, you know, uh, create jobs for people. So. I'm curious, and I know, uh, you know, Blair, you, you uh, talked about the, the work you had done with McCain um, and, and the international work around their international markets. Uh, I'm curious to know, how, how big are your ambitions with, uh, with Mrs. Dunsters and the other companies? Like you, is this potentially one day a McCain-like company? Is it, is it a, or does it stay quite regional or, or do you know yet? Yeah, we get asked that question a lot and, you know, well, I guess the answer I would have given uh, a couple years ago is well, right now we're dealing with growing at 30, 40, 50 percent a year, and it's it's hard to think about you know anything else. We we weren't sort of you know hunting for for more opportunities. What we did this past year is we kind of took a break from that, and we decided we were going to kind of actively avoid our customers for a little bit and focus on our 
on our internal systems and rather than hunting for opportunities and try to get our systems and processes in place and get our uh, business where it needed to be um, so that the growth when when we decided to refocus on that would would be easier to manage and and allow us to scale so we're building now internally aside from the investments in in new plants and so on we're investing significant amount of money in IT systems and and uh, and the bench strength of our, our team to allow us to to grow um, more efficiently and effectively so it's not as stressful um, but to answer your question about where is that growth going to come from you know there's there's a number of opportunities for us to grow. I mean, we are, uh, you know, we could grow geographically into, you know, Newfoundland, New England, across Canada, um, you know, into Quebec and, and other regions. We could grow um, by, you know, putting more products on our trucks, um, by introducing new products, um, by opening more retail outlets of our own. Um, you know, there's a number of things we could be doing. And uh, right now, we're kind of more focused on just getting our house in order. Um, but really, the there's no limit to to where this company could go with the staff we have, um, the, the support we have from from uh, our customers and, and those who have kind of are living away, you know, is remarkable. I think we have lots of brand equity not just in Atlantic Canada but across the country and throughout the US in fact whenever we post something on Facebook or social media of any kind we often get you know hundreds of responses from people in every state and every province saying what about us what about us when are we going to get Mrs. Dunster's so so who knows it remains to be seen right now we just want to get the new bakery up and running <laughs> not really not really focused on that one. Yeah. what kinds of uh challenges and, and opportunities has uh, the COVID-19 pandemic presented for you? So, um, you know, just in terms of um, challenges, you know, just, I guess, early on in, in COVID, you know, we were very, we reacted very quickly to, you know, get the social distancing right within our our facilities, um, and, you know, getting barriers put up and, um, you know, just that whole safety piece signage and all of that. So, um, so we, I think we pivoted to that very quickly. So that was, and our, our team accepted all of that really well. And, uh, you know, and, and now masks were all full hundred percent masks. So, um, yeah, so I think the team just really pulled together and, and we were able to, um, overcome that challenge quickly um, so that we could get back to work. Um, we didn't stop working through COVID as a, as a food uh, facility and serving hospitals and, um, you know, and schools and that sort of thing. So we just, we just kept chugging along, um, which was great because when other people were, you know, gearing up to reopen, you know, we were already doing all of the things. So, you know, our COVID plan and all of that. We had that all in place already. So kind of put us a little ahead of the game, I think. Yeah. I mean, at first it was, it was a little bit crazy trying to manage all of those things in terms of operational changes that need to be made. There were some product lines that had to be shut down because we couldn't social distance on those lines and some things like that. But while that was going on, you'll remember, you know, people, you know, groceries, buying groceries and toilet paper and all the rushes to, 
the kind of pantry stuff and, and people loading up their cupboards. And, you know, there's a point there we went from making 2,000 loaves of bread to 25,000 loaves of bread a day um, just to meet up with demand. And then it would go back down to 2,000 and then back up to 25. And, you know, our product's fresh, right? So it's not like we have a bunch of bread sitting in a warehouse that we can just pull out of. We, we start every day with no inventory. So... Uh, so for us, that was that was quite hectic, and uh, but we we kind of got through it, and I think people, you know, got sort of comfortable with the fact that they weren't going to run out of bread, um, and uh, and things normalized quite quickly, which was really helpful because it, it was difficult to manage those those peaks and valleys. Has that gotten easier over the months to manage as you've adjusted to that that constant change? Yeah, the, I would say the demand is as you know kind of normalized, so so that has made it a lot easier. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Um, and one bonus thing is that um, apparently donuts are comfort food, so we're selling more we're selling more donuts than we ever have before. <laughs> yeah, so true. that's been a uh, something good that's come out of come out of all of that for us. So, right, um, you know, we we had a lot of different variables in our business related to COVID. You know, we we were you know making food for for hospitals and nursing homes, so we had to build some inventory uh, on that side. Things like you know soup and chili and beans and things like that, which is part of our business as well. And uh, so we, you know, we had special precautions to set up in, in those areas where we're making those kinds of products. I and mean, there's just, you know, our whole business model changed. And, uh, you know, and we had, you know, I, I was telling the story from an entrepreneur perspective. We were at one point we had spent a lot of money building new offices in, in Sussex and and uh, geez, within months they were filled again because we were growing so fast. And here we were contemplating you know, adding more offices and doing more things and trying to figure out where we get the money for that. And, uh, you know, and I'm kind of glad uh, we didn't do that because a few months later, everybody was working from home and those offices are all empty. So, you know, it was, it's, our business is dramatically different today than it was six months ago uh, on many fronts. Yeah. We even had to work at like separating out shifts so that, um, you know, our donut line is, normally a continuous process and so you know during the lockdown we had you know we put breaks between those those shifts so that those people were not interacting and you know setting up different you know washrooms and and lunchrooms for you know one line as opposed to another line so those people weren't crossing crossing paths and that sort of thing. So, no entrances for employees. Yeah, new entrances and that sort of thing. So we really did a lot of work on that. And so, um, you know, we, we've gone back on a few of those things since things have lightened up, like in terms of, you know, donuts are running 24 hours now. But, you know, if we go back to orange, then we'll, we'll put those back in place. So. And how, uh, Rosalind, how are your, your employees feeling overall right now, like uh, in terms of their, their comfort level and, and, uh, and just see how you, how you see them, um, you know, navigating the pandemic from a work perspective, just a, but a personal one. Cause I know obviously you're, even though you're a growing company, it's a very family oriented company. For sure. Um, you know, I think that, um, I think because this is a, a longer term, uh, I guess, crisis, if you want to call it, um, 
I think at first everyone was stepping up and, you know, some people were afraid, but generally people, you know, stepped up and they were getting things done. And, um, you know, people felt good about all of the safety things that we had put in place. So they felt safe coming to work. Um, I think people are getting tired now. And I think just in general, not just with our work family, but, um, you know, the public in general, I think people are, they're, mental health, um, you know, it's, it's taken a toll on people and I think people are tired and, and so everything is kind of elevated, um, you know, just because that underlying pressure is COVID. So anything that kind of happens on top of that, there's a lot of extra stress. So I think people are, everyone's still chugging along and they're getting the work done, but I, I think that everyone's looking forward to, you know, and I think the whole Moncton uh, and Camelton thing, particularly in New Brunswick, has um, kind of heightened it all for everybody again. So a little bit of nervousness there. But um, but I think, you know, everyone's just looking forward to when we can, you know, breathe easy again. Right. And I, I suppose, too, in, in terms of your overall operations, the the feeling must be a little bit different in Moncton than it say would be in Sussex, right? Just right now. Yeah, there, there's that, but there's also, you know, in, in back in the spring when everybody was sort of in lockdown, it was, you know, everybody was kind of on the same playing field. Um, but what's unique, I guess, about the fall is that we have these regional um, sort of restrictions. Don't. So it's it's easy to make a corporate decision not to have people travel to the U.S. and come into work and isolate for four days. It's really harder, much harder to do it within the province and say, well, okay, now we have restrictions with Moncton, which is 40 minutes away, you know, and we have businesses there and we have employees that are responsible for doing things in both businesses and things like that. So so this regional thing creates a whole new set of challenges that um that you know we didn't have back in the spring so we're we're still learning you know every week how to deal with COVID. it's it's not like we you know we passed the test in the spring and we're just running by those rules the rules are changing every day it's a whole new experience in the fall now i know you know uh both of you are are very you know, community community minded and in terms of your charitable activities and your involvements, um, you know, you're very concerned about the, you know, the overall economic uh, health of, you know, of the province and, and the region. And, uh, you know, you, not just business owners, um, it would be enough just to run your businesses. Uh, but I, but I'm, I know of a lot of your community activities. And I'm, I'm curious, because I know in, in, especially in the most recent election campaign in New Brunswick, but also um, it, this has been a big discussion through COVID-19, around uh food security and food supply and 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 opportunities around growing you know food businesses in the region that you know are, are locally focused uh you know but also international in scope um what, what do you see is what kind of things should maritimers both you know ordinary people but also maritime business owners what what are the important things to pay attention to in terms of how the the food economy is evolving here but how it should evolve well, that's a really important question, um, Mark, and I'm, I'm really glad you asked it. You know, at the end of the day, we have a lot of work to do in Atlantic Canada around food security. And I think COVID really highlighted uh, the issues uh, for, for people, even maybe if they didn't recognize them in the moment. 
you know, by all accounts, you know, we we grow and process less somewhere between four and seven percent of the food that we eat in Atlantic Canada. And that's down remarkably from 80 percent or more, you know, um, sort of when your your parents were were young or grandparents. So at, at we've got we've got a problem. And uh, and, you know, it, the challenges that we have is have been highlighted in in every province here through COVID. So finally, um, I think people are starting to understand the, the importance of, of this. And so in, in every province now has a priority in, in Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland and New Brunswick and, and, uh, and Nova Scotia around food security. And I think there's, there's working teams in every province. We have a unique perspective because we do business in all of the provinces, but also with my experience developing, you know, emerging markets around the world and, and understanding how food supply and, and distribution and the supply chain works. Um, and also because we have Credo's Corner Market, which is a you know a grocery market that that buys produce and meat and and locally made things, um, so we kind of have this this perspective on on this issue. And I think that what um, are the things we we should be doing is you know it's great that all the provinces are working on food security uh, individually and that they have have teams working on this and coming up with plans to support food companies and so on. You know, food companies. In Atlanta, Canada, I think you had a, a podcast a few weeks ago with with Donat Savoie, and he talked about the importance of economic development. I think in answering your question about how we should focus our our economic development dollars, and he suggested food because it affects um, every region of the province has food manufacturing and food food uh, agri food. So if we were to build on that for a minute and, and say that that is true of Atlantic Canada, uh, it is. As, as a region, um, it should be a priority. But also the thing that's really important, I think, is that a lot of food manufacturing is done in rural areas. So not only are food manufacturers in, in the region creating jobs, but they're doing it in areas where jobs are harder to find. And I think that's, that's a real important value um, to, to add. The other thing I'll say is that we shouldn't be looking at this on a provincial basis. You know, the fact of the matter is in Atlantic Canada, we have basically the population of Mississauga and we have different parts of, of the region um, when it comes to food um, supply and food manufacturing and, and growing uh, have different strengths and different weaknesses. And I think that, you know, the task is so daunting in terms of the gap is so large for us to to reverse these these trends on on food supply that uh, we should be doing it as a region. You know, we should be tackling this as as Atlantic Canada trying to address food security. And there we don't all need to be reinventing the wheel in each individual province um, and sort of competing with one another on that front. We should be figuring out who's good at, at what on a regional basis. And we should identify where the gaps are and where the investments need to be made in supply chain and infrastructure for farmers and and uh, and manufacturers and so on and and we're mapping out the assets and and figuring out where the gaps are and and developing programs that'll create jobs in rural Atlantic Canada and and decrease our dependency on on central Canada and and other parts of the world for food you know during covid we had one beef plant in Calgary shut down that supplied 33% of the Canadian market with beef one plant 
You know, that's where our beef's coming from. You know, Credles Corner Market, we didn't have a problem getting beef. All our beef is local, you know, but there wasn't enough local supply to supply all the grocery stores in Land Canada because we, we've delegated responsibility for food growing and manufacturing outside of the region. How much of that is kind of a, a structural problem and how much of it is, is a cultural one? I, I asked that question because one of the things that uh, Donnell Savoie uh, brought up in the interview I did with him is he he talked about um, uh, an entrepreneur from BC who uh, in you know his scan of of sort of the globe and opportunities uh, to grow apples he he spotted an area in New Brunswick that was underdeveloped uh, and kind of saw an opportunity that economic developers in the region didn't see and he moved in here and it's growing a very successful apple business. Um, from your perspective and and your experience that you've had here at home, but also abroad, um, it, what would it take for for more of us to spot those kinds of opportunities and develop them? Is it is does it rest with the entrepreneur? Does it rest with support from from government and and the agencies that help support business in the region? Uh, yes, um, <laughs> you know the 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 thing about building you know, the supply chain for, for food and decreasing our dependency um, on, on food supply outside of the region is, is, is not a binary. It's not, there's not an easy solution to that, right? So we need to invest in, in the proper supply chain in the region so that farmers can get their products to market so that markets and buyers and, you know, users of, of products can easily, you know, get products from market just in a, a simple context, right? If, if somebody like us or, uh, you know, we're doing some work with the Food Depot Montad in, in Moncton in terms of sourcing local produce and, and meat for food banks in New Brunswick, for example, they don't have the capacity to deal with, you know, two dozen farmers to source, you know, carrots. And so we, we need to have a simple and efficient food supply system that allows the farmers to get that product um, easily distributed. Many of the other parts of the country have that. Um, there are great models out there for, for, for that. And so we need to invest in a proper supply chain system so that when somebody wants to buy something, there's a way for them to get it quickly and efficiently. And, uh, and when somebody's got something to sell, there's a way for them to get those products to market. You know, we, I do some mentoring work on, on mid-stage food companies. And the, one of the biggest challenges that small food startups have is, is, uh, is distribution and getting their, figuring out how to get their stuff out to, um, you know, to the grocery stores and restaurants and those kinds of things. So that supply chain piece is really, really important. And that's going to require investments um, and support. Uh, from entrepreneurs, but also I think from government. Um, the other part I think on the farming side and the agriculture side is we need some significant investments in infrastructure. So, you know, we need more greenhouses and we need more, especially with climate change and other things that are going on. You know, we need cold storage facilities. We need, um, you know, we need to raise the bar in terms of, of the infrastructure that we have. And, and that's a kind of a chicken and egg kind of conversation, right? Farmers need to be able to grow things, make enough money to reinvest that money back into their farms. Um, and they need a, a helping hand, I think, to get there. So smart investments in, in infrastructure that will be there for a long, long time, I think is another really important part of, of, uh, of the equation. And then 
lastly, I would, well, it's probably not lastly, but another area I would say is, uh, is labor. And, uh, you know, every food manufacturer in the province uh, that I've spoken to is having challenges with labor and, and many, not just, and that's not isolated to food. They're, you know, practically every manufacturer in the province, I would say. Um, and certainly farmers uh, have this, this huge challenge around, you know, getting their, fro- their crops uh, picked and out of the fields and uh and processed so the whole temporary uh foreign worker program is really important but also you know the things like the lamic integration project and other things to be able to bring in um permanent uh workers is is important you know people forget often talk about the trades and how we kind of spent a generation sending kids to university and how that affected you know the supply of you know plumbers and welders and electricians but it also had the same effect on on uh, farmers and bakers and chefs and the other trades, you know, that that we just we skipped a generation on this stuff. And so we need to find those people. But but that's a Canadian thing. It's a North American thing that there are lots of bakers and farmers and butchers and 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 people like that uh, around the world that would love to, to move to this part of, of Canada and and set up shop and start doing things. So immigration and, and labor and and training programs for our young people so that we don't miss another generation is is another important piece of the pie. I, I could go on all day about this, Mark, but there's a lot, a lot of, lots of things. But I, I think, you know, the, the key thing I would say is there's lots of priorities. It's the same priorities in New Brunswick as it is in Nova Scotia, as it is in PEI, as it is in Newfoundland. We should be working on this as a region because we collectively have the population of Mississauga, and uh, and we should be setting hard targets to be able to say you know uh, more and more of our food supply should be coming from this region and how to how do we do that you know we have all these incubators around tech companies and things like that we should have incubators around food companies we should be helping small mid-sized food companies get bigger and uh, you know we should be helping mid-sized food companies go national and we should be helping national food companies go international and Atlanta, Canada has a long history of successful entrepreneurs in the food business. It's one of our core strengths. It's not foreign to our capabilities. It's, uh, you know, we know how to do this. And we have lots of mentors and lots of people around who can help. You know, the Sobies, the the Tim Hortons, the Ganongs, the Olins, the McCain's, the, you know, the Irvings. Like, you know, we have a long, rich history of being successful in the food business. Right. And uh, I mean, uh, you've talked about, I know you do your own mentoring yourself. Uh, I, I don't suppose you want to add food incubator to your your your, your book of business and the things that you do. Um, I don't want you to think for a second that that's not an active project. But yes, so it's, uh, you know, I it's on my list of things to do someday when I have time to do it. But there are, there are a lot of people that have an interest in doing that uh, in the region. And, uh, and I think it's, it's really important. You know, one of the challenges that, you know, to give a, a very simple analogy is that, you know, somebody starts a small food company and they, they become successful and, and, you know, so they, out, they get to a point where they kind of outgrow their garage or their kitchen, you know. And so maybe they're, they're having great success and they're in a bunch of stores and they're selling some product. And the next step for them is to, um, is they got to kind of, they've outgrown their space. Maybe they're doing two or $300,000 a year in sales, but the next step is kind of to build a plant. So how do they build a plant? You know, that's a big leap from where they are. 
so there's this kind of middle ground where we need to help them scale up past that sort of awkward teenage years and into uh, adulthood to use a bad analogy and the way to one of the ways to do that is to have an incubator um, type program with mentoring and coaching and and so on but also to have uh, a production facility that can be shared amongst these these smaller manufacturers that can help them bridge the gap between sort of where they where they are and working out of their their garage to where they need to be into a food plant of their own um you know so that that kind of an incubator in the program which is which is tied to mentoring and training and and other uh things like that i think would would go a long way towards helping um people do that it's interesting that you make the the tech analogy because it's a perfect one i mean i just uh, a couple of weeks ago i i interviewed um uh, gordon gordon pitts who'd written this book called unicorn in the woods about mm-hmm. you know the the growth of of uh, q1 labs and, and radiant six and the ultimate sale of those companies um but reading that book and, and also what i know about the tech industry from covering it for a long time is it's it's obviously competitive it's it's capitalist in nature uh, but it's it's collegial and and there's a lot of sharing of knowledge and and a lot of cross-pollination you know if you will around growing that tech ecosystem in not just in new brunswick but across the region across the globe it's kind of a hallmark of of the tech industry from silicon valley on uh so it's interesting to, to hear you talk about developing food businesses in that context yeah i you know it's it's no different i think that you know companies that and people that that have the ambition and passion to to start um you know food companies are are have the same dna as the people in the tech industry they're just you know in a different industry and but they need the same mentoring they need the same coaching they need the same access to capital um to be able to do that so the the programs and the models are are not that different you know one of the things that you know you you asked me earlier about you know is it entrepreneur investment or government investment that kind of needs to be made here um you know one way that we could kind of put those two things together is is you know and it goes back to this regional approach is in atlantic canada every province has its own small business investor tax credit program for example and and so what that means is that if if you were as a as a new brunswicker wanting to invest in in my startup you would get you know a tax benefit from that and um, but if you wanted to invest in my friend in Nova Scotia's um, food startup, you wouldn't get any benefit. But if you lived in Nova Scotia, you would uh, for a Nova Scotia company. So you have to live in the province. Um, of, you have to be a resident of the province in, in which you're you're making the investment in the company that is also in that province. But as I said earlier, like we get the population of Mississauga. You know, we have two million people or so in the region, and that's not a large capital pool. So, you know, in Ontario, you can basically find money from anybody in Ontario in your small business investor tax credit program, and they'll get a credit for it. In Atlanta, Canada, in PI, you got to find somebody in PI that's got money. In Nova Scotia, you got to find somebody in Nova Scotia. We should have one common investor, small business investor tax credit program for Atlanta, Canada. And and if somebody in Atlanta, Canada wants to invest in somebody else's business and start up in Atlanta, Canada, then they get a tax benefit. 
And the reason we would do that and the reason we don't care, shouldn't care about the provincial boundaries around that is because we are essentially an economic region and and that company is going to be hiring people from Atlantic Canada. They're going to be buying things from Atlantic Canadian companies. We don't make enough of, of anything in any one province in Atlantic Canada to supply the needs of, of any manufacturer here. Like when we write checks, Roz and I sit down and sign checks uh, at the end of the week, you know, we're writing checks to companies in Nova Scotia, companies in PDI, companies in Newfoundland, companies in New Brunswick, because, you know, you get different things from different folks. And and so the, the whole region benefits from the growth of Mrs. Dunster's. It's, it's not a New Brunswick story where New Brunswick gets all the benefit any more than, than uh, our friends who own a bakery in Nova Scotia only have an impact in Nova Scotia. So, so these are the kinds of programs we could do. And by the way, that wouldn't cost the governments anything. And, and you talk about wanting governments to, to sort of invest and, and get a return on, on their investment and mitigate the risk. Well, you know, somebody has to decide to put their money into that, right? So there's a lot of vetting going on when investors are making investments through that program. So no one's going to, you know, they might get a tax credit back, but they're not getting it all back. So they got to, no one's going to throw away half their money or three quarters of their money um, to get a government program unless they think they're going to get a good return on it. So by that virtue, I guess it, it kind of protects the government side of it as well, because people are vetting these decisions um, strongly. So anyway, that's the end of my rant on that. <laughs> It, it, I mean, it raises all kinds of interesting, you know, questions. I'm going to have to book you guys for a part two, for sure. Um, just around, you know, access to capital, either the right supports, uh, you know, in the region, you know, within the industry, um, you know, around, you know, ideas like incubators and, and accelerators that we t commonly associate with, you know, the tech industry. By the way, on that, um, do, do you have any, any, any news to share or is that more that's something that's uh, very much still in development around creating those kinds of industry supports? No, it's, it's, there's no news to share. It's just an idea that, that people are talking about um, because food security is on the radar of many more people. And so, you know, in, in my conversations with, with people that care about food security in the region and people that are working on economic development in, in the food industry and, and folks that you know are are mentoring uh, like we are uh, other food companies and so on there's just a lot of conversations about the need for that so there's a, there's there's not there's nothing active in the con nothing imminent let me say um but i think that there's a lot of interest so we just need to get the right people together um in the room um to make it happen and we need to i think take off our sort of provincial hats and put on our Atlantic Canadian hats and, and tackle that in a meaningful way. Well, Blair and Roslyn, like this has been a, a great chat. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking the baseball season has come to an end. And so I'm not <laughs> going to be coming to uh, the field in Sussex uh, behind, uh, behind your facility and the bakery. Uh, but it just jumped into my mind that we're about to head into hockey season. I was just going to say uh, that. Yeah, <laughs> We're still we're still trying, I think, with hockey and basketball, obviously, they're still trying to figure out how things are going to work in terms of traveling around the province. But that rink is very close to your facility. Yes. You could also take up skiing. Mm -hmm. When we do ski. 
so, so actually you're giving me lots of lots of reasons uh to stop because uh, the ski season will be starting yeah. and hockey season is starting any anything else in, in, before we close that you wanted to uh to bring up no i i think that if we go we'll go back to you know us talking about opening the, the new bakery in in moncton and how proud we are to to be building uh, you know, the first sort of commercial bakery in 20 years in, in Atlanta, Canada, that that in, in this part of the world, I, I just think we missed maybe the opportunity to say the reason we're able to do that is because we have so much support from um, people all over the region and, and through the state of Maine. And, you know, that support and by, by people focusing and putting an importance on buying local food, um, the consequence of those buying decisions every time you go into a, a grocery store um, is that um, we now get to build uh, a new place and be um, with new equipment and be able to make a significant contribution to our community and hire people and pay suppliers. You know, there's probably a hundred tradesmen working on that today as we speak. And so the economic impact of that is a direct consequence of somebody walking into a grocery store and picking up a bag of Mrs. Dunster's donuts or a loaf of our bread. So it's important that we support local companies and and we're grateful to everybody for doing that, not just for us, but for other local companies as well. And I just, I just want to add that, you know, we haven't, we wouldn't have been able to do any of this without the hard work of our employees. So um, they're the ones that are, getting the work done and, and, and making this happen for us. And they're just, they're awesome. Um, they're hardworking and dedicated and they want, uh, want to see Mrs. Dunster's do well. So just really proud of the teams that we have and, uh, and what, you know, what we've all been able to accomplish together as a team. Yeah. And, and, and obviously that's really evident because there's a, 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 you know, a final note for me in terms of the dedication of your employees. I know uh, Nikki uh, just joined you a few weeks ago and she was she was on my doorstep last night at eight o'clock uh, after coming down from a session with you that day long session uh, to pick up the microphone that you have there. So like it's, it's pretty clear that uh, that you have that that dedication for the people that you work with. Well, I'll, I'll just tell you one last story, Mark, because it just reminds me of this story, but it, it sums up, I guess, the commitment of our employees in, in a meaningful way is we were walking in the bakery one morning and, and uh, walking through that store we've been talking about. And, and uh, you know, I asked uh, the, the lady on the cash, I said, how's it going? She said, oh, not very well. She said one of the ovens broke down uh, last night, so we're, we're a bit behind getting stock for the store. And I looked through the window there into the plant and there was somebody on top of the oven repairing the oven. And I said, well, that's amazing that you were able to get, you know, if it just broke down last night and you were able to get a repairman in this, this fast. And she said, oh, that's not a repairman. So that's my husband. I called him, told him to get his ass out of bed, get over here and fix the oven because we needed some <laughs> stuff for the store. And uh, so that, those are the kind of people that work for us, you yeah. know, and, uh, and we're really proud of that. All right. Well, thanks very much, Blair and Rosalind. This was a, a real pleasure and uh, we'll look forward to part two. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to the latest episode of Huddle Home Office. And thank you very much, uh, Rosalind and Blair Hislop. That was a great chat. The Huddle Home Office is produced by me, Mark Legier, Sharice Letson, and Tyler McLean. 
And you can subscribe to Huddle Home Office on your favorite podcast platform, whether that's uh, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Uh, please do go subscribe and, and listen to a uh, treasure trove of past episodes there uh, that include conversations with uh, business and political leaders like uh, Frank McKenna and uh, Blaine Higgs and uh, Marcel Lebrun and David Alston, our very first podcast. So if you haven't subscribed, please go do that on your favorite platform. And if you like a Huddle Home Office, please uh, suggest that a friend subscribe as well. We always love new listeners. And we will talk to you next week.